Hey guys, Tim here. Embarrassingly, I didn't create an Instagram account until early 2018. For the first six months of having that account, there were precisely two entities I followed, Zach Couples and Resilient Rehab and Performance. If you listen to this podcast, there's a good chance you know of Zach. However, the Resilient Boys, Trevor, Greg, and today's guest, Doug, have flown a little more under the radar. Nevertheless, since 2015, they've quietly built a private PT empire, spanning Manhattan, New Jersey, and Connecticut. If you scroll way back on Resilience account, you can still see Doug sprinting in a field or Trevor goblet squatting a kettlebell so large it looks more 15th century cannonball and less weight training implement. Anyhow, these guys have some shared mentors with Michelle and I, and we very much respect their base of knowledge when it comes to all things biomechanics and persistent pain management. Doug specifically has been through his own personal ringer with back issues so severe that at one point he could hardly walk more than a block at a time. Additionally, he's a badass backcountry skier, and his life before PT school was jumping out of airplanes to administer emergency medical care to military personnel in war-torn lands. I, however, managed the carts on a golf course. I wanted to talk with him about how personal experience has impacted his treatment style, popular misconceptions regarding persistent pain, and skewing strength and conditioning exercises towards higher reward and lower risk. We covered those and then some. Also working in a discussion of Goggins versus Coddling, the necessity of treatment models to be both explanatory and predictive, and normalizing pain amongst practitioners. We hope you enjoy the show as much as I enjoyed recording it. And while you're thinking of it, go ahead and leave us a five-star review on the pod player of your choice. Doing so will let Michelle and I continue to devote time to this show for many more seasons to come. Without further ado, here's Doug. I'm Tim Richard. And I'm Michelle Bolin. And you're listening to the More Train, Less Pain podcast. More Train, Less Pain. Doug, welcome to the pod. Yeah, thanks for having me, Tim. Quite the good-looking garage gym setup that you have behind you. Thank you. <laughs> I, I realize I always start these by commenting on what the person has behind them in their background, and we only publish the audio so that the listener is just lost. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm in a garage that has exercise equipment for everyone listening at home on audio. <laughs> do you do you see like patients or clients out of your garage, or is this just a, a for Doug kind of setup? So I do, but I didn't I didn't design it with that in mind. Like when I moved out of New York City and got a house, I was like, oh, like I can actually have a home gym, which is awesome. And I built it for myself, but you know, the equipment that I have would probably enable me to work with 95% of the athletes that I would treat. You know, there's probably some specialized, pe specialized pieces of equipment that I could benefit from if this was purely about like having the best sort of clinical um, setting, but for most people, it works really well. So I moved here in um, early 2021, kind of the heart of COVID. And I had some people that I'd work with in the city who, you know, were commuters, but they live in like Connecticut, Westchester. And they were asking me if, you know, if I happen to be doing anything out in this area, like in the Connecticut, Westchester area where I am now. And I said, well, I've got a pretty nice garage home gym. Um, so if you're willing to come out here and, and, and you know, work here, um, yeah, sure, I could, I could, we could make something happen. And pretty much anyone who came here thought that it was, I mean, I'm much more like self-conscious of it because it's my garage, but it doesn't look like a garage. So it actually is pretty nice, but you know, nobody thought that it was weird or shoddy or anything. And 
probably it's better than even if I were to get a space in town in a strip mall somewhere, it's a little bit more intimate and just as nice, if not nicer. So yeah, it's worked out pretty well, but I built it for myself, but I do actually treat out of here. And so technically it's the resilient uh, Connecticut location. <laughs> Do cars ever make their way into the garage? No, there's no, I, I have like actual gym flooring. Like there's no room for a car and a car will never step foot in the garage. The cars go outside. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's such a waste of square footage, you know, for those two days a year <laughs> when it snows really hard, I'll just, you know, just brush the snow off the car and drive over it. I remember that was uh, when I moved into a house maybe three years ago at this point, that was, um, I was like, oh, I'm going to build out the garage gym. And we were having a winter in Colorado where it was just every week would snow like a foot and a half. And it, it took about two weeks of that for me to be like, no, it's more important that the, that the car stay inside. Yeah. I mean, I think I lived in Colorado it might be different. And plus I'm, like, I'm a minimalist. So having like all this, this gym stuff in the garage keeps me from hoarding and just getting a bunch of crap that I will use once and never use again. So like we don't really have room for that kind of stuff, which is good because anything that we we purchase is like something stuff that we're actually going to use. Love it, man. Uh, so I think I want to kick things off with um, something that we we ask a lot of guests here on More Train Less Pain. But Doug, if you could tell me, uh, did you did you work out today? No, tonight. <laughs> okay, okay. It's been a, bit, a bit busy day. Yeah, I'm more of a night person. Tell tell me about your last workout, your last training session. Um. Well, do you, I mean, so yesterday actually I played tennis, which is probably, you know, I was a pretty like competitive tennis player and it's probably the most like athletic thing that I do when I play with good players. Yeah. So I did that yesterday. I don't know if you would consider that formal training or recreation, but I mean, I'm sprinting, I'm changing direction, you know, like I'm playing against some like college level players. So like, that's, like I said, probably the most athletic thing that I do. And my actual training revolves around, around like maintaining the ability to do stuff like that, you know, like right, fun stuff right. that isn't in the gym. But the last like gym thing I did was on so Monday I'm I'm working in Manhattan where I'm don't even I don't have time to train. I'm gone all day. But Sunday I did um an hour. I have like an incline treadmill that goes up to like a 30% incline. So 30% incline walked for an hour with a 50 pound pack. And it's like that was like my you know kind of zone two cardiac output work for the day. But that was my last like gym thing that I did. Are you staying zone two with a 50 pound pack at a 30%? That was actually on, on, on Tuesday. I'm sorry, not Sunday, uh, Tuesday. So two days ago. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm cause I just go at whatever pace allows me to like breathe through my nose and keep my gotcha. heart rate kind of like in a zone two. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're definitely maintaining fitness for future backcountry ski expeditions. <laughs> for sure. Yeah. I mean, I'm going like, I was going 1.8 miles an hour. So I wasn't like, you know, right, I wasn't right. like cruising, but yeah you can just keep the speed at whatever allows you to stay in those parameters. Yeah. That's, that's why it's funny to watch people react to like visually how insane a 30% uh, incline treadmill looks like I used to have one of the apartment complex back in Boston and it would crank to like 35 or four, like a ridiculous incline, but it just looks insane. Mine, mine actually goes to 40, but you can't do anything sustained on it. Like you need to have like just ridiculous dorsiflexion. And it's just, it's, it's almost awkward. Like you kind of would have to walk up it like sideways. You wouldn't want to walk <laughs> for an extended period of a 40% incline straight on. Like if you were actually on a mountain on a 40 degree slope, you would traverse it. You wouldn't actually walk straight up it anyway. Yeah. Yeah. You're putting like skin material on the bottom of your training shoes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like crampons <laughs> in the treadmill. <laughs> it might not be good for belt longevity. Yeah, exactly. 
so I, I know, you know, this season, our focus is on persistent pain and kind of what happens with an athlete when getting out of pain entirely is no longer realistic or shouldn't be the primary goal. I wanted to have you on because I think you're somewhat of an expert in this topic, but also, you know, from following you for the better part of the past decade, I know that you've gone through stuff like this recently, um, be it, you know, your back or, or maybe something before kind of in your, in your military career, but was hoping that you can tell us a little bit more about like personally what that journey has been like for you. Yeah. And it's, you know, when you talk about persistent pain, it's funny because I mean, if you treat enough of that population, it does kind of like, there is sort of a, a mental stereotype with that. Like when I think of the persistent pain person, a lot of times I think of the chronic pain person, you know, patient who doesn't necessarily have a lot of pathology, but they hurt and they're somewhat debilitated. But in my case, like there was definitely something structurally wrong. Um, and so I had like, literally I had persistent pain, but it wasn't the kind of like, where it was more sort of psychosocial than it was. And, you know, obviously all these things blend together, like where does the physical and the psychological begin? But I do work with a lot of, you know, in the clinical, my clinical realm, like a lot of persistent pain patients where they're actually like, as far as, and look, this is based on our ability to, to measure things. So we're limited by technology and MRIs and stuff like that. But I work with a lot of people where it's like, yeah, we can't find anything structurally wrong, but they're somehow, you know, like their, their, their function is limited by pain. But in my case, so I had a, I had a back surgery basically like three years ago at this point, I had a laminotomy. I had, you know, congenital stenosis. So born with a narrow spinal canal, but then just that combined with athletic background, military background, and just kind of like the, the, the trauma from that. I would even say like when I was younger, some like dumb training, all these things kind of, I was predisposed to having, you know, neurological back pain. But I also probably did some things athletically, training-wise, professionally that, you know, made, just sort of made that anatomy that I was born with more, more consequential. And um, so the surgery was three years ago. I mean, I kept for like, honestly, ever since I was maybe like in my early 20s, I always remember just like constantly feeling like the left side of my back and sort of like iliac crest area was tight. I remember even like early 20s, like, always getting soft tissue work, getting ART and Rolfers. And like, you know, they'd kind of like, I get some work done. It would feel looser for a while, but it, it would always come back. Knowing what I know now, it was, it was like my, you know, L, <laughs> L5S1, like nerve root being compressed. But I, I, I never got an MRI until it was like really, really bad. So I dealt with that on and off for, I mean, probably like 20 years, but it never like kept me from doing it. I'm just like, you know, my back is tight. Like I could always get it to like feel decent enough to perform, but Looking back, like I never really remember not having some awareness of it. Um, but there were times when it would be pretty minimal and times when it would be a lot worse. But it was always kind of like at a low enough level where I could just block it out and it didn't keep me from doing anything that I wanted to do. And then I'm trying to like put the math together. So I had the surgery three years ago, probably about five years ago. I started to like when I would walk more than a couple of blocks, I would just get this like searing pain in my buttock where I'm like, wow, like it's weird because I'm pretty fit, but I feel like I have to, I have to sit down after I've walked for more than like five minutes. And, you know, if you, if you told me that as a clinician, like someone like has that much trouble walking for five minutes and then when they sit, it feels better. I'd be like, oh, you have like stenosis and you should go like, see, get an MRI or whatever. But because it was me, I was just in denial. I'm like, 
I didn't even, I didn't even think I could have that. Cause I'm like a late thirties, like, you know, typically this is something you see in people that are much older. Um, and I'm like, yeah, I'll just like, I'll just do my mobility stuff and I'll maybe get like one of my partners to like work on it, you know, just work on like my glutes and my QL and they'll feel better. Well, I tried that and it didn't really make a difference. And now I'm at the point where like, I mean, at that time I was still training pretty hard because if I was training, I could kind of block it out, like walking and like doing normal stuff in life was worse than training. So, I mean, at the time I could run like, like a low five minute mile, but I couldn't walk more than a couple of blocks. So I'm like, God, ah, this is, this is kind of weird, you know? And it, it got bad enough where I, I was living in New York City at the time. I never like sat on the subway because I just think that it's gross. And I'm also like, just kind of weird. And I always want to be like vigilant on the subway. And I'm like, well, like I actually, like, I can't stand on the subway. I have to sit. So I'm sitting on the subway, which like I never did. And then I, I had to walk like uh, maybe like five blocks from the subway station to work. And it got so bad that I couldn't make the, the the five block walk from the subway station to work without having to take like pit stops. So I was actually taking Ubers to work and like spending a lot of money taking Ubers to work. And I'm like this, like now, like you, you can only be in denial for so long. And I'm just kind of like, all right, you're young and healthy and fit. And you're taking Ubers to walk to work because you can't walk more than five blocks. So then at the time, I didn't have like normal healthcare. My healthcare was the VA, like the military healthcare. And I went there and they were like, this is on a Thursday or Friday. And they're like, okay, like obviously something is wrong with you. Like we're going to schedule you for an MRI. And they'd schedule me for an MRI the following week. So this is like Thursday or Friday. That Saturday, I was at home in my apartment and like I literally collapsed in the shower and just couldn't, I was like, in, like when you've had nerve pain, there's nothing like it. Just shooting piercing pain down my leg. It was like debilitating to the point that I had to like, cr I like crawled out of the shower somehow like dried off and got into bed. And I was in so much pain that like, even to go to the bathroom, like my wife had to hold the bottle that I, that I pissed in on the, on, the, on the side of the bed. So I, I ended up, I'm like, okay, I should probably like go to the ER. Like something is really, and it, I'm not the kind of person that goes to doctors and see, like I haven't been to a primary care doctor and like 20 years, which is probably not great either. It's all, <laughs> but, but I'm like, I don't go to doctors. Um, and uh, I decided like, okay, I, sh I should go to the ER. I somehow managed to like get in a cab and go to the ER. And then I went to the ER at the VA, which wasn't the, the best experience. And it turned out that the MRI, they told me that I had, I didn't actually have scheduled. And then for me to like schedule an MRI, because at this point I know what's going on. I'm, it's like, there's something, either it's like a disc or something nerve related in my back. And, um, you know, this is just typical case of like sort of government healthcare, I knew what I needed. I needed to get an MRI. I needed some kind of like pain management, whether it was like an injection or whatever. And they couldn't get me to see a specialist for like maybe like three months. And I'm just like, well, I have a life. I have to work. Like I can't, I can't wait three months to get a definitive diagnosis on this. And the MRI was going to take a few weeks. So luckily, I mean, I, I'm just, I, I, because of just the field that I was in, I, I have enough connections where I called someone, I called a doctor. I know I'm like, look, if I, if I pay out of pocket, can you get me like to get an MRI as soon as possible? So I called a friend, he got me the MRI, you know, it turned out I did have like a bunch of nerve root compression. Um, and I got, you know, a couple of like epidurals, which I don't know how much of it, like the epidurals helped or it was time, but I ended up, th um, this happened probably like in October or so where I'm like in the ER. And I remember, you know, it got, it resolved enough that 
maybe two or three months later, I was like skiing. I still had some awareness of what was going on. And then I managed to just with whatever I was doing, the epidurals and just kind of dialing back my, my training and building back up. I kind of bought myself two years. Um, but then right around the time that my, my first child was born, this is in like September of 2020, I ended up having that thing again, where I remember holding him in the hospital and um, like standing up. Cause you have to like, kind of like rock them and, you know, they, they like it better when you stand and when you sit. And I was, if I stood for more than a few minutes, I got that, that thing again, where I felt like I had to sit down. And at this point I kind of knew what was going on. And I also had some episodes of more localized back pain prior to that. So I'd already had, um, I'd had an MRI. I knew at this point, like I'm probably, you know, more of a surgical candidate. And then when it, when it got to the point that, um, I was like, I just had a, had a child and I couldn't like hold on to him or stand with him. I'm like, all right, I can't, I can't live like this. So I had a bunch, I got a bunch of surgical opinions. And it, I mean, this is part of like, what's enlightening about the process too, is, you know, we think that medicine's very concrete and something like an MRI is concrete, but when you go to even like well-respected people, they all have a slightly different interpretation of what the problem is. Like one person thought it was like more of the disc and wanted to do discectomy. One person thought it was purely the stenosis. And then I went to somebody else finally, and like he spent an hour with me going over the MRI and he was much more thorough. And it was like, here's the problem. And it was the stenosis. Like basically in two places, the nerve was just completely choked off. So it's a, it's a mechanical problem. Like unless you resolve that pressure on the nerve, nothing you're going to do, you do, you do is going to make that nerve pain go away. Um, so I ended up getting the, uh, the laminectomy, you know, like central, central and foraminal stenosis, foraminotomy as well, just kind of shave off some of that, like hypertrophied, um, uh, you know, joint there, set joint. And so since then, I mean, like it was the right procedure, like the, the, that searing nerve pain, like immediately went away. Um, I still had some residual paresthesia in my foot for like, you know, up to a year after that. And occasionally I will still get that. And occasionally I'll still get like some localized, just like tightness in my back. But when I do get it, I can get it like worked on even like just some soft tissue stuff and it like resolves pretty quickly. So basically like the surgery, I mean, without that, I'd be pretty screwed. The surgery like truly was life-changing. So when people talk about like, ah, oh, you know, back surgeries are bad. Like, yes, they can, in the wrong person, they're bad. But when someone needs it, it's truly a life-changing procedure. And for me, I mean, if there was no way to resolve the pressure on those nerves, like I don't, I don't, I don't see how that gets better on its own. And I was 40 and I had my whole life ahead of me and kids and a career and physical things that I enjoyed doing. So the quality of my life was preserved and is immensely better as a result of that procedure. I still, you know, like there's certain things that maybe I would have done 10 or 15 years ago that I won't, like, I won't like heavy deadlift, heavy squat. And, and frankly, at this point, I don't even care if I do those things. Um, like just really heavy bilateral movements, like aren't, I'm not going to do as well with, and it's just the ROI on them is pretty low. I feel like, and I can get everything I need by doing other things that are just are less provocative without feeling like I'm losing, losing out on something. But even that said, even, even though I'm able to do everything I want to do, like if I really think about it, I mean, every day I do have some awareness of like, yeah, like my back's a little tighter on the left side, or I might have a little bit of like paresthesia or that slightly spongy feeling on my left foot. No like motor weakness, but the point is like, I, as we discussed in the beginning, like when, when 
you know that it's not realistic to be totally pain-free or discomfort-free, but you still want to do things. Like that's kind of where I'm at. Like, I don't think it's realistic that I'm ever going to have like zero awareness of that pathology ever again. Like I always have some awareness and it's always somewhat in the back of my mind, but I, I don't really like modify what I do as a result of it. But it's not like it's never, there's not really a point where it's like never totally there either. And so that's kind of like, that's where I am now. And, you know, a lot of the stuff is just what kind of a life do you want to live? I mean, I don't, I don't actually even feel like if I'm more less active, I don't feel any better being less active. Like, and I don't feel any worse if I'm really, really, you know, active physically and even somewhat aggressive. So I kind of look at it like, well, if no matter what I do, it's going to feel the same. And I actually do feel better when I'm moving. If no matter what I do, I'm going to feel the same, then I may as well just like do what I want to do and not have to compromise if I thought that the things that I enjoyed were like actually compromising my longevity and like my, you know, if I thought I was actually making a trade-off, then I might modify what I was doing. But even then it's kind of like, it's the whole, well, would you rather, you know, live to be 90 uh, or, you know, live the way you want to live and live to be 70. It's like, that's right. why, I mean, when it comes to this stuff, it's, it's also as much philosophical as it is scientific. Like, I think you've got to start with what is your life philosophy and what kind of a life do you want to live before you actually get into the clinical and the scientific part of it, because like no one can tell you what, what the best life is for you and like how to live your life as a clinician, you can kind of like guide people based on what they tell you they want out of their life and out of their body. But that's why, you know, I think a lot of medical people are a little bit pejorative where they're like, well, you know, you shouldn't, I know that, I know that you like doing X, Y, or Z, but you shouldn't do it. And it's like, well, who are you to tell them what they should and shouldn't do? Maybe you could educate them if you even know a lot, a lot of these are unknowns too. It's like, you can't even right. say with, with certainty, if you do this, this is going to happen. But assuming we could even do that, you can educate people about the risks and the trade-offs, but ultimately it's the individual's decision as to how, like what trade-offs are sort of um, justifiable to them. And for me, like, I don't really want to, you know, I'm only, I'm willing to make certain concessions when it comes to like what I do, like in a gym, but like, I don't want to stop skiing, playing tennis, doing martial arts and running and sprinting and those kind of things. And so, you know, if, in a theoretical world, like I'm going to have more back pain when I'm 80 as a result of that. It's a trade-off that I'm willing to make versus like not doing those things when I'm younger. So it's a little bit of like a long-winded way of answering your question, but that's kind of the, you know, the full, full circle where I'm at now. And no. And I think I, you touched upon something that I think bears a little bit more conversation about, which is this nature that like, like you've had this structural back issue for a long, long time. We'll be back to the show in just a minute. One of the big themes of this show is the importance of continued development if you're a trainer or therapist. If you listen to Michelle and I, chances are you're not the type of practitioner to take everything they learn during school at face value. You're curious, hungry, driven, and want to be the best you can be for both your clients and yourself. However, Instagram scrolling and taking weekend courses with three-letter acronyms will only take you so far. You need a mentor, someone to help you make sense of what you've learned, the habits you've developed as a practitioner, and where your knowledge or application gaps may be. I can say for certain that I've had the good fortune of standing on the shoulders of some giants in our field, Lance Goyke, Zach Couples, my now co-host Michelle, and Bill Hartman, to name a few. More than explicit knowledge, what I gained is a framework of how to take in new information, process and reflect, and iterate continuously, something that a three-letter acronym course won't be able to teach you. 
As such, it's my pleasure to act as a mentor for clinicians and trainers that can add more structure to their clinical development. Over the course of four 50-minute long sessions, we'll dive into your model, poke and prod for areas of cognitive bias, and assemble the scaffolding for shaping your continual development as a clinician. If this sounds like something that'd be of value to you, shoot me a DM at Tim underscore Richart underscore DPT on Instagram and include what you'd like help in making sense of. Now, back to the show. If the only thing that was playing into your symptoms was the structure of the back, it's like, you know, you probably would have been forced to get the surgery when you were 20 or 25 or something. Yeah. And, it, and it's, again, it's not to say that getting the surgery is the right or the wrong call, but I think a lot of people like to impose somewhat of a false dichotomy with like, this is a structural issue versus this isn't a structural issue. Yeah, totally. And you, t- you talk to people that are like, I mean, I'm, you know, mid thirties, you're early forties now talk to like enough people our age that have been training intensely and doing stuff for a long enough period of time. And it's more common to hear a story like that than not. Like it is less common now. I think about the cohort of dudes I climb with. Most of them had surgeries. We can still climb pretty hard, but like we all have stuff. And I think that especially uh, this, this is a little bit of a ramble, so I apologize, but especially the doing, doing what we do for, you know, for our profession, like being physical therapists, being people that are in like the performance space, it's, it seems like it's a little bit frowned upon for people in that space to actually yeah. have honest conversations about this. To admit that they've had injuries. Yeah. Yeah. Or even yeah. like for, for me, I remember, so Michelle and I did, you know, two seasons of this podcast. It went reasonably well. Some life stuff happened. There was like a year and a half layoff and we kind of talked again. We were like, do we want to do another season? And I remember saying to her like, well, you know, like this hip stuff I've been dealing with for 15 years now has gotten to the point where like, I'm very, very limited in what I can do. Um, And I'm, you know, considering surgeries, not really liking any of my surgical options. The only thing I would really feel comfortable talking about that doesn't feel like I'm talking out of the side of my mouth would be this sort of journey through persistent pain and kind of like attempting to navigate as a human being first, the complexities of this persistent pain puzzle, figuring out what all the inputs are, weighing probabilities, weighing different strategies, as opposed to like, you know, having a conversation, like I'm still doing 35 mile trail runs every weekend. No. And that's, that's a great point. I mean, I feel like there's kind of a stigma in our field where it's like, if you admit that you, you had an injury at some point, it's like, well, then you, you don't know what you're doing. Right. Where, I mean, look, this is the body can only take so much stress. Even if you know what you're doing, if you're pushing it, like you're going to have, you're going to have injuries. I remember even like, you know, at one point, like Kelly Sturette's been pretty public about like how he had to have a knee replacement because he had a traumatic skiing accident and people were giving him crap. Like, Oh, well, look, like out. The, the supple, <laughs> no, but like the supple leopard had like a knee injury, like almost as if like that sort of undermines his knowledge. And it's like, he, he fell skiing at like 60 miles an hour. And like, you know, what, what is he going to do? Like, what are you going to do? Like, you're like the person that's criticizing him for having the knee surgery and the knee replacement. Like, what, what would you have done if you fell at 50 miles an hour and like your knee got trashed? Like, how are you going to like rehab your way out of that when there's structural damage? So yeah, it, it is unfortunate that you can't be, people can't be like honest about some of their own stuff. Cause it's sort of like, if they do, they feel like people would troll them and undermine them. But um, yeah, I mean, look, it's like, th- this is just a normal part of the aging process and being active. And if you're like living a pretty active, aggressive life, like you, you're, you're going to deal with pain and discomfort. Um, and I don't think it necessarily is like, having an injury or any kind of pain is like an indictment on someone's knowledge as a clinician. But that's the kind of world we live in where people are sort of quick to judge, but it's kind of like, all right, well, what would you do? You know? For, for sure. And I mean, I think, you know, now I've kind of, at least from a psychological perspective, come out on the other side, 
with with this idea that like I think anybody else given my like if you look at a like some radiography of my my hips and pelvis it's kind of a mess there's like some dysplasia there's some arthritis happening all that stuff and now it's like well you know I think any nearly anybody else given that same starting position probably would not have been able to do the things that I was able to do in my mid 20s like late yeah. 20s early 30s so I, I mean I think about um like thinking in bets by Annie Duke is a book that's had a big influence on me in the past six yeah. months and it's like if if this is a hand of poker if like if you're you know genetic setup is these is are the hands that you were dealt it's like you play them to the best of your ability and you know for kelly like you know it's it's a bad hand to be dealt to have some kind of traumatic knee thing but you're you're still going to play that in an intelligent way it would have been crazy for him to be like yeah i had this uh disarticulation of my knee and now i'm going to do you know banded hip mobility and yeah <laughs> you know it's so it, i i think there is something to be said for especially when it comes to being a practitioner, it's like you can have stuff and actually what makes you a good practitioner is your journey navigating your own stuff. Not only does it give you empathy, but it also gives you the ability to play in this gray area, which is kind of what I'm exploring this season of like, okay, things kind of hurt or things are kind of tight. What do we do with that? Like, how do we take that as information and do something useful with it as opposed to shut everything down or just ignore it and continue to train like you did when you were 19? No, I mean, that, that's, I think that, you know, like eventually people develop intuition with their own bodies. I mean, we're lucky enough that we have clinical knowledge and we have, and that's the hardest part of, of actually like working with people in pain is that you can, you can objectively measure something. You could look at how they move and it might pass your eye test. And in your mind, you're like, there's no reason this should hurt. It looks perfect. They're not compensating. Um, you've seen thousands of other people perform the movement in the same way. And typically when it's performed and the way you think is good, it's not painful, but you don't live in that person's body. So if they say it hurts, it's kind of like, well, what do you do? Right. I mean, we're lucky that we have that in that clinical intuition with other people and with ourselves. So I think for me, like I, I, I know truly they're in between like discomfort and injury and like when I really shouldn't be doing something. Um, and so like, I'm, I, it's hard for me to even articulate what that line is because I can feel it in myself. Right. right. Um, and so when I get that, feel, you know, basically when I get that like, oh shit feeling, I don't do the thing that's causing the discomfort. If I'm like, yeah, like it hurts, but I feel like my performance is not compromised and I don't feel like I'm inhibited in some way, then I keep doing that thing. Um, Cause you know, for the most part, like I do adhere to the school of thought, like, it's better to move even if it hurts a little bit, as long as it's not making it worse. But there obviously are situations where like you should not, you should just rest. Um, right. And I think, I think in our field, the the prescription for rest is overdone because a lot of people aren't comfortable with risk and they don't, I think just know enough about like different types of progressions and, and regressions. They don't know kind of like what's, what's safe and what's not. And just it's like in medicine as a whole, it's like very risk averse because of, like liability and, and legality. So it's like, well, let's just err on being super conservative. But the problem with that, especially when it comes to persistent pain population is that if people are constantly told this is dangerous, don't do it. Okay. Well maybe, you know, for the first two weeks, sure. But if they're told that for six months, then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy where like, yeah, it is dangerous because they become more and more sensitized. So I think as soon as you can break that sensitivity cycle, or the sooner you can break that sensitivity cycle, the better. Um, because for the most part, I mean, I don't think 
even post-op, I think we're probably a lot of times too conservative post-op or trying to respect tissue healing. But the reality is like your nervous system is not going to let you destroy your knee a week after an ACL surgery. Like all the things like you're not supposed to do, your body probably won't let them do, let you do them unless you're under some kind of anesthesia. So we have those feedback loops already. And those feedback loops tend to be a little bit healthier with like acute pain and persistent pain. Those feedback loops run a little bit awry. And that's where you've got kind of like a disconnect between, you know, your body's perception of threat and the actual threat to the body. And that threat level is probably always set to a little bit of a conservative level because you want to have some buffer. You don't, you don't want your body to have that kind of alarm go off, like right when you're at the point of failure, because then we'd have a lot more injuries, but in, in persistent pain, especially when the advice is like, yeah, if it hurts, don't do anything, just rest. Well, now we basically created like chronic pain patients for life because they've been convinced that everything is dangerous and it just makes them more and more sensitive. And those feedback loops are just totally off. Um, and that, that's the tricky part about working with like the really chronic pain patient where they don't have clear structural pathology because, you know, you've got to get them like working near their threshold, but not above their threshold because you want that sort of smoke alarm to go up and up to a healthy level. But if you exceed it when, the, when it's low and they're sensitive, it just gets lower and lower and lower. And now you're in this kind of like vicious cycle. So it's really, it's really tricky. And a lot of it is intuitive. Like I said, luckily for me, I know what that feels like, but it's hard as a professional, you know, with just your eyes and some objective data to know like what's too much for a patient and what, what isn't. And that's why ultimately it's kind of like a, it's always a conversation. I tell patients, I'm like, you have ultimate veto power over what we do and don't do, but I'm still going to like try to push you because like, if we just, if we don't, if we just continue to not do stuff, you're never going to get better. And yeah, like if you're content, not be, just like living your life, not being able to do all these things, then that's fine. But you're, you're never going to like hope and magic is not, a, a rehab strategy. Like you're not magically going to one day wake up and feel like you can do all these athletic things if you don't have a progression to get there. Right. Right. And I think, um, like one thing that you know, the, the pain neuroscience movement, I, I feel like is uh, probably <laughs> lost steam, like, you know, over the past oh. few years, but I remember like when you and I were in physical therapy school, like that, like that was very in vogue. And I think there's yeah. a lot of things about that, that I do disagree with, but one of the central tenets that I do continue to find valuable is this notion of like the pain threshold and yeah. that things, things are allowed to kind of hurt. Like things kind of hurting does not mean that if you did stuff, they're then going to blow up into this like dramatic 10 out of 10, like, you know, your knee is going to catch on fire or something. And I think that that is a dramatic frame shift from, I even think about like when I was um, running track in high school and college, it's like the second you admitted that you had something that might be an injury, it was like, you're going to the trainer, you're getting yeah. shut down. Like it was, it was very dichotomous in that way. You either, you either were injured or you were not. And looking right. back, it's like, I was basically like... Uh, like if I was being honest with, you know, myself, then I was just always sort of injured. Like I was always a little injured, sure. but I think I could have been managed in a way that I probably could have never missed any practices, never miss any meets. Yeah. Um, and I think that's what, that's what it feels like is happening for those of us in our thirties, forties, fifties that want to continue to, you know, push the envelope and do some stuff is like, we have to live in this, in this framework of like, okay, we're like always a little hurt. But that doesn't mean that we just ignore that because that's information. And it certainly doesn't mean that we shut everything down. The other thing that came to mind when you were talking is like, 
I think you and I do have the biomechanical understanding to back up the intuition that we have. I kind of feel like a lot of the value that we bring to patients struggling with persistent pain or, you know, or just go-getters that have had pain for a long time is starting to develop intuition that is actually useful as, as opposed to like, I feel a thing and I shut it down or I feel a thing and I ignore it. It's like, you feel a thing. Cool. What do you do with that? Yeah. Um, and yeah, I think that a lot of what we do is just giving people permission to move. So if someone's, if someone thinks that something is dangerous and they're more likely to do it, if a professional validates that it's safe. So, you know, with persistent pain patients, I'm often like, all right, like what's the thing that scares you the most? let's say it's picking up a weight off the floor. It's like, well, all right, well, is there like a certain threshold of weight where like you feel less safe? Um, and we'll just, you know, we'll kind of like play with those provocative things and just try to scale it down to a level that they're, they're comfortable with. And so some people, they might have like, there might be a disconnect between I'm working with somebody now, actually, where if you watched him doing stuff in the gym, you would never think that anything was wrong with him. But then like when he gets out of his car, he's like very, very, it's like a very cognitive activity for him. It's very strategic as to he's like, should I hinge? Should I round my back? And like, we'll even do things, you know, in the gym that, that like where he's clearly in a position of lumbar flexion deliberately because he's afraid of it. Um, but when I'm not there to validate it, then he goes back to being very robotic about th things that are much more benign than what we do, you know, in the gym. So sometimes like we'll, we'll film what we do. And I'm like, when you're scared to like, get up out of your chair or get out of a cab, like watch the video of you doing the, the 10 things that we did today that are way more like quote unquote risky and dangerous than getting out of a, you know, getting out of a chair or getting out of the cab. And so, but I'm not there. I'm not living with him the rest of his life. So he doesn't have that assurance. So it's like a lot of it is just trying to do things that, you know, mimic or like exceed the stress of what it is the person's afraid of to give them confidence. And then hopefully in their real life, it gives them some kind of like a buffer where they can look back on that experience and say, okay, like this shouldn't scare me because what I did, and that's kind of the whole point of rehab in general. I mean, if you're working with, you know, a running a field sport athlete coming off like an ACL surgery, like if you do the right things in, in training and rehab, the game shouldn't be scary, at least from a physical standpoint. Like obviously we can only mimic the the tactical and the, you know, the sort of the perceptual demands of the sport so much, but like, you know, someone strains their hamstring and they're about to run a track meet. Like they shouldn't be scared of the track meet if you did rehab properly, because they would have run at max velocity before you discharge them. So it's like, well, yeah, you already ran full speed and your hamstring didn't hurt. And that's why like, you know, a lot of times with like ACLs and stuff, you'll see they have these like psychological scales as if like, that's a different thing than the physical. But to me, with, unless it's like at the extreme where someone has true like psychological pathology and needs to be referred to a mental health professional. I think if you're doing the right progressions, the psychology largely takes care of itself because well, if you scale everything properly and you, you build, you know, you kind of reverse engineer that process, like you should be doing things that are at the level or slightly above the level of what it is that the person functionally needs to do in sport or life. And if you do that, then when they do it, it shouldn't be as psychologically daunting. Right. It's like you're almost you're you're measuring this indirect correlate of the thing that you're actually looking to measure. Like I think about um in the elderly population, they have like these fear of falling 
scales. Yes. Yeah. And and it's like, what do you do with that? Like if someone has high fear of falling, the intervention is not to sit down with them in a chair and talk to them about how their body is strong and resilient. It's to get them doing <laughs> right. stuff so that they actually have some modicum of confidence in their ability to dynamically change position, stabilize all that, all that fun stuff. And that's, that's a great point that you brought up like the pain science stuff. I don't like obviously different pain science is not one thing. Different authors kind of have different takes on it, but some, I mean, you know, there are, there are sort of pain science books and authors where their whole thing is like, you know, pain neuroscience education. Like they'll do like an hour long, like basically talk therapy. That, that to me is just like, you know, you can, you can talk about something in the abstract all you want, but if you don't, people generally hurt when they move. So if you don't have some kind of graded exposure or progressive overload, you can, you can tell someone that something shouldn't hurt all you want. You have to kind of prove it to them. And that's why even a lot of times, like I'll work, you know, especially with kind of the persistent pain population, like there's, there's a lot of people have what seems like clinical anxiety or depression, but it's a chicken or the egg thing. It's just like, are they depressed because they hurt and they don't, they can't or won't do anything they enjoy doing or do they hurt because they're depressed? I mean, after a while, it's kind of like hard to tell, but assuming I'm working with someone where they say like, I did not feel this anxious or depressed until I hurt my back three years ago. I mean, if I take their word for it, I'm like, okay, well, the root of this seems to be your, it's, it's movement related. It's not like, you're not just depressed in isolation. You're depressed because you can't, you can't move or, or you don't have confidence to do the things you want to do. So there were times when I'm like, oh, this person seems really depressed. Like maybe I should send them to, you know, like a mental health professional. But then I'm kind of like, well, at the end of the day, like if we don't physically make them do things. I don't know how much the mental health professional is going to help, assuming that like the movement related stuff is the root cause of all the psychological um, issues they're having. And so again, I mean, it does get into like scope of practice stuff, but like I sometimes like you have to wear multiple hats. Obviously, if I think someone like it, it has a true anxiety disorder that's like affecting their life, I would refer them out. But if I think the anxiety is driven by like a movement related issue, I think as a physical therapist, like the only one that's going to help them is someone in my field. It's not, it's right. not sitting on a couch and talking about their fear of movement because how do you get over your fear of anything? Like you have to do it in a progressive way. It's like, if you're afraid of public speaking, you need to maybe start by talking to yourself in front of the mirror and then do it in front of someone that you are comfortable with. And then in front of two friends and then in front of 10 strangers and then work your way up to 20,000 people or the internet, whatever. But you're not going to get over that by not public speaking, just like you're not going to get over a fear of movement by not moving. Um, but there's so many, it's just, it's, it's very discretionary, right? Cause not everyone's different and no one has the exact same story. I think the mental health tie-in is a really interesting one because I can speak, you know, j just as, as a patient and it's like, it really wasn't until uh, my hip stuff started to get really bad that I, I did have some struggles with like depression and that kind of stuff. Yeah. And it's, you know, the entire time that you were talking, I, what I wanted to say was both and like, like, of, of course, you have some type of tie into mental health that comes from the physical, because I think if you look at what tends to be really effective for people struggling with like a generalized uh, depressive episode or like some kind of depressive disorder, it tends to be things that put them back into their bodies, right? Mm -hmm. It's like you go for a walk, you do strenuous exercise, cold plunge, sauna, get sleep, like th that, that sort of stuff. Um, but it feeds both ways. And I, I, you know, I think going through 
what I've gone through and then, and then actually seeking some help from a mental health practitioner has made me a far more resilient human being because it forced me to contend with the fact that um, even if I wasn't able to lift heavy or run, I was still a perfectly valid human being. And, yeah. and, and, and there was a, you know, a whole manner of things that I could like bodyweight strength training still on the board, walk still on the board, climbing still on the board. So it's like, if you have this ability to pivot and shift how you're defining yourself, then you have a much, you just have a much higher probability of being able to deal with whatever life is going to throw at you. And, and that obviously, I mean, that, that generalizes to uh, life and not just, you know, a physical discipline that you've temporarily lost. Yeah. And that's, I mean, your situation I think is unique because I'm kind of referring to the person maybe who isn't as like athletic as you. I mean, for you, it sounds like your identity was being an athlete. And once like kind of the, the realization that some of those things might be taken away, whether temporarily or permanently, it's a challenge to your identity. And if you're not, if you need someone to help you cope with like, all right, how do I reframe my identity? That's like, I, I would not, I don't think I am qualified to help someone do that. That's when I would right, like refer right. out. So again, I, I tried to like specify a very, very sort of narrow set of circumstances because yes, like once like identity gets involved and sort of like one sense of self-worth, um, like if you, if you reach kind of like what your physical, not you, but like someone in general, you reach what probably is like your physical ceiling based on the anatomical constraints, or even in terms of like what pain allows you to do. And you're still not really satisfied or like quote unquote happy. That's where like, I would refer somebody out because it's kind of, I feel like, all right, like if we can exhaust your physical potential and I don't think that like your psychological inhibition is what's keeping you from progressing further, but you're still not sort of content. That's, that's when we, but I don't think for a lot of people that that mental health professional piece is useful until we've exhausted that physical piece, you know, because right. otherwise you don't really know what's working. Yeah. Um, so yeah, like I do, you know, like I think there is some, there's like doing the pain neuroscience education is useful. I just wouldn't spend like entire hour of my, the whole hour right. of my session doing it. Like yeah. we might like talk for five minutes about like kind of mindset and how to frame this stuff, but then we're going to, we're going to do things. But that's where, you know, the judgment call comes in. Cause if I was working with someone like you, you're different than the person who like, well, like you got, you got me to like walk pain-free or get out of the chair. They, they might, they might be happy just doing those things. Right. But if you're like, if you're having kind of almost like an identity crisis, like, wow, like, am I going to have to like for the rest of my life, modify all these things that have made me kind of who I am. And you have to reframe that. I'm not, I'm not touching that. Cause I don't think I'm the most qualified person to do it. Sure. Sure. And I would say, cause I, I, th I think it's more likely, you know, for people that listen to this anyway, that our trainers are therapists that, that they yeah. might fall into that camp. And it's like, it's, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here right now saying like, I, I, I feel for that person. And it's interesting because like, even within that context, um, if a person can just reframe and learn to be content with the things that they can do, cause they're almost always are things that they can do. Like even in the most dire of, of circumstances, yeah. then it's just like learning to be okay, not pursuing things to an extreme anymore, which one way or another, it seems like everybody gets to, it's just like, do they get to it in their thirties or do they get to it, you know, in their seventies? Yeah. And I mean, everyone's got different deal breakers. Like for me, I got to a point where I, I thought, okay, I like, it is not prudent for me to be like pulling really heavy from the floor and, and back squatting. And, you know, like 15 years ago, there, there, like I was emotionally attached to those things. Right. And so that's probably like what accelerated this was I wasn't willing to give them up. And looking back, I'm like, that was dumb. Like, why didn't you just start like 
leg pressing and rear foot elevated split squatting and like doing the um you know the flywheel belt squats like all the things i do now where i'm just like yeah there's no like real void in my soul because i'm not like <laughs> doing more meat heady stuff in the gym but if you told me now like you can't ski you can't play tennis you can't do something like you can't kite surf that would sting a lot more and that's that's that and I haven't had to deal with that. So right, right. that might be where it's like, okay, I got to go, go talk to somebody because <laughs> and like sort of, you know, then reframe like who, who, I, cause I, I don't think ultimately like deadlifting is what made me who I, and those aren't the things that like I ultimately derive the most satisfaction from. They were, they were always a means to an end, even if at one point I was a little bit more emotionally attached to them. Um, but the end is like just being able to do things outside now, like doing things with my kids. And if, if those were compromised and that's what made me have the surgery is, you know, like you said, I probably had that. If you did an MRI of my back 20 years ago, I would have had stenosis, maybe not as bad as it was three years ago when I had the surgery, but it would have been there. But what made me get the surgery was like, I couldn't do life things. Like I couldn't right. walk more than a few blocks without having to sit down. I couldn't hold my son, you know? So like that, that it's like, yeah, I can give up deadlifts. I can maybe even give up, you know, if you said, okay, you, you can not have surgery, but like, you can only play tennis, you know, once every month instead of every week. It's like, maybe I could do that, but you can't not like pick up your kid. Right. So and that's a lot of times, I mean, there, there are certain instances where it's like very clear, like you should have surgery right now, but most of the time it's a little bit more discretionary. And whenever people ask my advice and like, should I have surgery for this? I'm like, only you can answer that this, but I, you know, my, my, my hope, my barometer is when you feel like you just, you can't go on anymore, like how you are now, like, if you had to live the rest of your life like this, could you do it? If the answer is no, you should probably have surgery. Right. Um, if you can make concessions and still be relatively content, then keep waiting. But I got to a point where it's like, all right, I, I couldn't concede anymore. It's like I, I can compromise, you know, like how aggressively I train, doing some of the recreational sports and stuff like that. But when it comes on like walking to work, if you can't do that, then that's right. not, you know, that's not sustainable. You alluded to this, but I did kind of want to tee you up because it certainly sounds like you've made some changes with how your training, physical preparation, mobility work looks, you know, in this current season for you, as opposed to the way it looked like five to 10 years ago. I mean, you mentioned like, you know, some of the belt squat type stuff, but when you think about how you manage things now, how is that different than how you were attempting to manage them? Like, let's say five or 10 years ago. Uh, I mean, it's not. I, I, I kind of have like a template of what I want to be able to do physically. So like conceptually that template has not changed, just the tools that I use to, to achieve that have changed. So it's like, all right, like, I, like no matter, just for longevity's sake and being able to not be physically limited in the sports that I enjoy, like I need to have like, as for example, lower body strength, but how do I, how do I achieve that? Like now it's more, you know, like a leg press, like, and these are these are things where like I can train with maximal intent and not have to worry about my back, right? So like I can do a rear foot elevated split squat very very heavy, and if anything gets sore, it's like my glutes and my quads the next day, but I won't feel my back. Um, like leg pressing, it's funny how things come full circle. Like when I was you know 16 and started lifting, I, I did the leg press, and then I found out that it was not functional and it was a machine. It was going to make me less athletic, so I stopped. And now <laughs> like this gym that I go to has the Kaiser leg press, and it's amazing because. I can crank the number up to like 700 or more on that. Not have to load any plates. I just push the button. The air goes up and I can absolutely blast my legs to the point that like my, I'm about to burst the blood vessel in my forehead <laughs> and feel zero on my back. 
you know um we have like the 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 flywheel like at our facility i'll belt squat that put on you know two of the big flywheels like my legs are getting blasted don't feel my back so that all that's changed is kind of like the is the 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 how not necessarily the what um and you know, i still like i want to be i think you know being able the ability to sprint like if you can if you can sprint and not hurt yourself as you age i think that's a great kind of like sort of longevity indicator so i want to maintain the ability to sprint so i still do that um you know maybe like from an endurance standpoint I haven't really had to modify that because that wasn't really the stuff that was ever provocative. So I could still put on a heavy pack and walk, walk uphill. So it's really, it's really just the lifting stuff, frankly. And that's the only thing I've had to truly modify to kind of like, um, you know, maintain the sort of template that I've, I've adhered to for a long time, but the template itself, I just want to be generally well-rounded. Um, and it's just really like modifying some of those lower body strength things. That's all I really had to do, but it just took me way too long to do it. And I was way too stubborn. Uh, but th I think that's the way that it goes. It's like, you know, we, yeah. we in, in an ideal circumstance, everything, uh, you know, in this realm, like comes to this nice gradual, like, okay, these symptoms are just barely starting to get a little bit worse. My movement profile is just barely starting to get a little bit worse. So I'm like, I'm going to make this intelligent decision, but more often than not, people need to crash the car into the tree in some way, shape or form. And hopefully it's not, you know, incredibly catastrophic, but like you need yeah, that right. hard stop. Yeah. I mean, if my, you know, if I could like time travel and go back to my like 16, 20 year old self and I told him all these things, I, I'd be like, get out of here, old man. Like I'm going to, you know, I'm, I mean, like my, my training back in the day was like, cause this is when, you know, posterior chain was the best thing. And like, you sort of like, you weren't ever allowed to like round your back or go into lumbar flexion because that was bad. Right. And this is all me like misinterpreting things, you know, and just like not having a good filter for information. But I mean, I might like, front squat like you know like around like 350 for reps and then do like good mornings with 315 and then do like kettlebell swings as like a finisher to like get more posterior it was like everything was just like back extension like you know <laughs> as much weight as possible um and like i wish that i had the wisdom that i have but that's just part of the process right like you just don't right. you're not going to listen and sometimes you have to make mistakes to learn but when I do work with athletes who are kind of more like I was, I try to educate them on like, look, like ultimately these things, like a leg press and a squat, like it doesn't really matter because what's going to make you better at sports is playing the sport. This is all general stuff anyway. So I try to, I try to educate people like no matter who you are, like everyone who's squatted heavy has hurt their back squatting, but no one's, I don't say no, one, but like people don't really hurt their backs leg pressing or doing lunges and stuff like that. So that does resonate where if you tell even a young athlete, like, have you hurt your back squatting? Yes. Have you hurt your back doing any of the things that we're doing here? No. So just consider when you're training on your own, like maybe if the goal is just to strengthen your legs and it's not about like telling someone how much you squat or, or like consider making, you know, these your. We will be back after this quick message. The biggest struggles trainers and rehab professionals have with building and scaling their online training programs, attracting remote fitness clients, and maintaining communication is having quality videos that provide exercise technique and coaching instruction. Well, now you can stop searching the internet 
You will never find them unless you go to michellebolin-training.com for the best exercise database on the internet. Imagine all of the funny looks your programs get when clients are trying to figure out what an exercise on their training program is instead of having clear instruction. Gain access to over 1,500 exercise videos, coaching tutorials, and hundreds of positional instructional videos to send to your remote clients with the new digital format of the MBT Exercise Database. You will not find a contralateral reach walking lunge, a military crawl designed for posterior expansion, or a frontal plane hip shifting med ball slam on YouTube or anywhere else for that matter. The new database dropped in 2021 and hundreds of fitness and rehab professionals use it to easily build out their online training programs with built-in buttons to insert the videos into personalized training programs or to use videos to send to their rehab patients for at-home homework. The database will transform your training business by drastically improving scalability, improving communication with clients, and teaching them proper technique from afar. If you don't believe me, Dr. Pat Davison said, and I quote, This database is a goldmine for coaches who care about executing movements for athletes that can legitimately impact sports performance and health. So head over to michellebolin-training.com to learn more. And now, back to the show. Picking these from your menu because it's got a little bit, I think, higher ROI, like more benefit relative or the same benefit relative to the risk. But, you know, if, some, if someone truly derives fulfillment out of doing the things that maybe, you know, are a little bit, can be a little bit more provocative, um, then do them. But just right, like everything is a trade-off. There's no, like nothing right. is for free in biology. Right. I, I think, yeah, Bill does a really nice job. Bill Hartman talk, talks about this a lot. Uh, you know, our jobs are essentially just trade-off managers. Like yeah. there, there is not, and I think people especially want strength training to be for free. Like they want strength training to be this panacea of like, oh, you're hurt, strength train. Oh, you've already been strength yeah. training, strength train more. It's like no, they're like even. I mean, even the like the so-called newbie gains have a certain amount of trade-off. Like there's there's a particular type of athlete that um, can be very very easy to over strength train, and like now they can't move as freely, and now you've robbed them of their superpower. So it's right. like, I'm, I'm, I do think that gym work is a panacea, like, because I think it's one of the rare things where things are happening so slowly and so intentionally that people can learn a lot about how their bodies move and where their bodies are in space. That a lot of times, like in sport, things are so dynamic and chaotic, exactly. um, especially, especially if your sport is a particularly dynamic and chaotic one, but it's just this right. notion of like, you know, if think about like, I think I could squat like 185 in college when I was running, you know, mid distance at a D1 school. And then I, within a few years was able to squat 350. It's like, was I a better runner? No, I was definitely a worse runner. <laughs> was, right, yeah. was I less injured? No, I was definitely more injured. Like it was, it was not an absolute good for anything other than like the amount of muscle mass I was able to carry on my legs and my butt and you know, my ego. Yeah. And also I didn't know what I know now. So like I was back squatting, but I also had like zero degrees of hip internal rotation. So like, right. <laughs> it's like, I didn't like, yes, like back squatting isn't bad per se. Like, again, it's just a tool and how it's applied. But for me, it was a terrible tool because I didn't have like the requisite position to do a squat well. So I would just like throw a lot of weight on the bar. Like that would kind of help me get down. But, you know, it's like there different tools are 
more appropriate for for certain people. And the tools that I was using were not appropriate for me because I just generally like was gravitated more towards like the stiff end of the spectrum and doing things that made me more stiff, that made me not feel good when I probably should have been focused more on like, you know, just having some variability in how I moved and picking, you know, like strength exercises that were, you know, like just not as didn't involve as much like sort of bracing and stiffness. Um, but you know, I, I didn't know any better. So hopefully I can, I can like, people can learn from my mistakes. And that's one, you know, one thing about like, I think all these experiences have made me better as a clinician because any dumb thing that someone's done, like I've done too. And I've got the, the, like, you know, the scar, like literally the scars to prove it. So, I mean, you know, someone's like, well, it's easy for you to say like, you don't, it's like, actually like I do when I did lift very heavy. So, but again, I'm educating. I'm just giving people options. I'm not, it's not my place to tell somebody what they should or shouldn't do because ultimately it's sort of up to them and what, what they derive fulfillment from. But I also do try to tease out, like, I don't let people off the hook easily. I'm like, well, are you sure this is what you really want? Or do you think it's because I, I was like, if you can articulate like, yes, like this is what I really want. Okay. Then I'll, I'll help you prepare for doing like the low bar back squat, even though you're not a power lifter, but you, you know, some people just do it because they think that's what you're supposed to do, but they don't have a great reason for it. So that's also where the instinct comes in because I do push back when people tell me, okay, like here's the thing that I think is important. Um, because sometimes we're, we're just on autopilot and we do things out of habit, not because they actually are important. And so that needs to be teased out as well. For sure. I, I mean, I think going along the lines of this whole like the trade-off management concept, it's I think strength training is an easy thing to overdo because the metric that people typically track is poundage or yeah. like, you know, overall output where it's like, I th- what you said with how you currently manage your own training, your own physical prep resonates, which is like, you've predefined some things that you want to be able to do. And probably I mean, knowing, knowing you like probably like some objective criteria about how, you know, fast you want to be able to sprint or run a mile or, or what have you. Yeah. But when you do that, like when you actually sit down and go through that process, what that helps a person to do is generate, uh, what, a- what attributes are going to be enough. As opposed to like, you know, if a person's just learning to deadlift and they can deadlift 185, they're like, oh, I want to deadlift 245 mm-hmm. by the end of next cycle. And you're like, cool, cool, cool. And then you like, you work that up enough. And now it's like, okay, I want to deadlift 315. And it's like, dude, you're an 140 pound distance runner. It's like, you're like the, the two, the 225 was enough. Like we've already hit enough. Right. We have, we have nothing more to gain here. We're just going to keep hammering how you're putting force into the ground, the yeah. positions that you're able to hit. And I think that like, really that is going back to the, like the broader context of this discussion. It's like when we're managing people that, you know, do have like one, two, three out of 10 type of pain at multiple locations. It's like, Hey, but you know, you did a split squat with, with 95 pounds on the bar for 12 reps per leg. Like I, that could be enough. Like we don't right. need to progress that. That could be okay. It's hard to not progress it though. When it's, it's all, like all, every time you add a number to the bar, you get a dopamine hit. So for yeah. sure. Yeah. And, and yeah, like, how do you define what's strong enough for a certain person? And that's why like that ongoing conversation about like, what do you, what do you really want out of this? Like, what is, what's the end game? Because if, if, if they can tie being able to squat 315 to their end game, well, then it makes sense. Even if they said like, my end game is, I just like how I feel when I lift heavy. It makes me feel good about myself. That like, that actually is a good reason. But if the reason is, well, I want to deadlift more than 315 because I, I think it's going to make me better at the, you know, at the 5k, then, well, that's a different conversation because it probably right. isn't. Right. Yeah. Right. 
I, I think about like working with a lot of like younger female clients and, and, you know, they come in, they're like, oh, my, my back hurts when I have to like stand at an event for an hour. It's like, oh, what, what kind of shoes are you wearing? And they're like, oh, well, I wear like, I wear my cute shoes. I'm like, oh, okay, well, what if, what if we tried some different shoes? And I inevitably get them to buy like some ugly running shoe with an over-the-counter orthotic. They come in, they're like, my back doesn't hurt anymore. I'm like, cool, problem solved. They're like, no, no, no. But like, I, I, I feel good when I wear the other shoes. Like, I want to feel good about myself. So like, what other yeah. stuff can we do here? And it's like, you, you know, that that used to be something that would drive me crazy when I was a younger clinician. And now it's like, right. no, you like, you want to feel good about yourself in wearing those shoes or with your example, like doing that lift, that's okay. But we just have to call it what it is. And we have to understand that it's a trade-off that we're managing. And that, you know, if you go to an event and wear your high heels for two and a half hours, like give me some mobility work before and after and make sure that the preceding day is mainly spent in your ugly Brooks adrenalines or something like that. Yeah. It's a great point. I mean, a lot of it's managing expectations. Like go wear like wear the high heels all night. It's like, but it's also, there's nothing wrong with hurting after you wore heels for five hours. Like that's right. like kind of normal. And if, I mean, if you do that and you know, like you, the, you wake, you go to bed and the next day, you're fine. Like you don't even need to do any mobility work. Maybe that would help. But I'm also kind of like, I think is we want to be like so important to people as like clinicians that we like give them homework. And but I don't, I don't like turning people into busy bodies. Like if someone tells, if someone's like, Hey, can you give me like, a routine to do before I wear high heels, I'd be like, well, all right, when you wear high heels, like, do, do you feel better the next day after you sleep it off? Yes. Well, then probably just like, I don't, I don't know how much this pre heel routine is going to help you. Right. But if you're fine the next day, then like, I'm not going to give you crap to do like, and make your life busier. Like, just, I can give you a routine, but if you try it, and it still hurts to wear high heels, just accept that like, all right, like, it's going to hurt a little bit as long as it's not debilitating. You can still have a good time to distract yourself. And it's not like we don't have to make every aspect of someone's life pathological and then try to like optimize right. every aspect of their life. And that's right. kind of where we are with everything now. Like everything has to be like, what's my routine for this and this and this? And how do I track this? And it's like, just like, you know, people who like wear the continuous blood glucose thing and they eat a cookie and they feel guilty. It's like, what do you expect? When you eat a cookie, your blood sugar is going to go up. Just like right, eating, right. it's going to go down as long as you're not like abusing it and doing it in moderation. Like we don't need to optimize everything. And it's like, it's okay to like have a little bit of a stiff back. If you're wearing heels for five hours, it doesn't mean your back is damaged or that it's dangerous. Just, you know, like I said, if it feels better the next day, then just why don't you don't have to add stuff all the time. Dude, I think about this HRV and sleep tracking stuff. And I, I feel like I fight this battle so often with clients where it's just like, Hey, why'd you miss this workout? It's like, Oh, cause my watch told me that I didn't sleep well. Yeah. Like, oh, okay. Well, do we think that maybe that's a counterproductive metric to, to be tracking? Like if, if all your watch is ever telling you is how bad you are at sleeping and all it's ever making you feel as bad about your ability to not get a good night's sleep, might it be useful to just be a little bit more intuitive and ditch the technology? Yeah. And then, I mean, if it's like, well, if you have someone who's not going to sleep no matter what, and the choice is crappy sleep and sedentary or crappy sleep and exercise, crappy sleep and exercise is still better. Sure. Right. So I think, you know, again, that, that, that's the whole like optimization sort of crap that we've been sold is that everyone thinks they're elite. So it's like, oh, I have to like optimize my workout based on HRV. Like, I think it's questionable even at the elite level, if we can really say, well, if your HRV is this, you're going to perform this way, you should train this way. But in someone that's like relatively untrained or isn't capable of high outputs, like, I don't think the HRV should have any bearing on on how they train. It should be more based on like how they feel, but it's the idea that like, Oh, well, you know, I, I need to do like the, the, the optimal workout for today. But if the alternative is like you doing nothing, 
just go, just go do something. It doesn't need to be like, you know, I, I think trying to be that personalized, I think that's, that's kind of the narrative now. It's like, everything needs to be, you know, we'll do genetic testing and figure this out and this out. Only at like the margins is that stuff really, really useful where you can identify clear genetic pathology or where someone's HRV is like, if your HRV is low enough, like you're, you're not going to feel well enough to train anyway. Right. Um, but so I'm not, I'm not saying that it's bad. I think for a lot of people, it's just, they're doing it because the marketing has worked really well, but I don't think it's truly changing behavior. And if anything, I think it's giving them more things to more noise in their life to focus on when their lives are already inundated with in, too much information. And it's like, you know, think of our lives. It's like, check your inbox. You have a hundred emails. Now you got to look at your HRV. I, I don't think we need m more metrics at this point. I think people should be simplifying, but we've, we've been told that we need more data. We've got to be data driven. But a lot of times the data that we're collecting, number one, isn't even that reliable with a lot of these trackers. And even if it was like, is it really going to affect what you do? If it's not going to affect what you do, then you shouldn't collect it because it's just going to make you neurotic. And a lot of these people right. are, it's like, they, like you said, they feel guilty about their lack of sleep. Um, and they'd be better off just like, just go to bed, <laughs> get, yeah. get a good night's sleep, you know, don't, but don't, don't feel guilty about last night. Right. Right. I I've been a big, uh, Tim Ferriss fan for, I mean, hell, like 15 years since he mm -hmm. came on the scene. I remember reading the four hour body in like eight hours when I was in college. Um, but it, it's been interesting to observe his arc because he was basically like the optimization guy. Yeah. And now, and now he's pretty staunchly like the de-optimization guy or Is like, right. Like, okay. Yeah. Or, or like kind of the, like allocating optimization intelligently where like yeah. he, like I, I just listened to a podcast of his yesterday where he talks about like, these are the areas of my life that I'm, I'm actively trying to de-optimize, which is in and of itself its own form of optimization. Like he was talking about how like some things yeah. should just be non-time constrained. Like the optimal way to do them is not to be trying to, like they don't have to be for anything. Like a dinner with friends doesn't have to be for anything or going for a walk doesn't have to be for anything. Right. And and that's what I think about with a lot of these like persistent pain situations or just structuring training in general is like not everything needs to be this like very tied in like it has to be, you know, the setup has to be this exact thing. We have to use a zercher hold. We have to go more than 10 reps. We have to breathe in a certain way. It's like I, all of that stuff matters and all of those things are levers that we can pull. But if everything becomes that, to your point, that's exactly how we build neuroticism in people. And I, I know, you know, personally, like I still struggle with a ton of that of just like going through a rep of, I don't know, like wall squats, foam roller wall squats or something and being like, well, I need to change this little thing. It's like, no, that like that mainly felt okay. Yeah. Well, the other thing is, we typically don't know what optimal looks like. I mean, that's, that's what makes this tricky is in a theoretical world, if we knew what optimum is or was, then maybe we could try to pursue it. But number one, we don't, we don't know what it looks like most of the time, even if we think we do. But ultimately, I think what a lot of this optimization does for people is it gives them a sense of control, even if it's false precision. And people would rather have that false precision and sense of control than acknowledge that a lot of what we do is very uncertain and arbitrary and just do it and relinquish that sense of control versus saying like, Oh, like my HRV is this. And I'm, this is my workout today. A lot, a lot, a lot of what we do in any area of life, I think is theatrical. And sometimes that like theater um, sort of like enables us to not have to confront the, the hard part, which is that we don't really know and that life is uncertain. So we have all these these rituals and like sort of these theatrical things in our lives that give us that false sense of precision and control. And it's like, it's safety is what it is, but it's a, it's a false sense of safety.
Yeah. I mean, I think even in terms of like treatment models or biomechanical models, it's like they need to have both the ability to explain phenomenon and the ability to predict phenomenon, right? Like if, like if you, which if they you cannot, have, they cannot predict. Yeah. I, like pretty much no. Like we, we haven't had any robust body of literature that says like, if we squat in this way, we're less or more likely to get injured. But that's, that's like, why I, I, yeah, no, I, I deliberately do not, unless somebody asks, I don't tell them why they hurt. Cause the reality is I don't know. Right. I mean, I've, I've got some experience and pattern recognition, like, okay, well, if you're lacking this, this might happen. But typically it's like someone comes in, whatever, like my hip hurts when I squat. I'm not, I mean, unless I think they have true FAI that like warrants a surgical consult, I don't bring up the word FAI. I don't talk about cam lesions and pincer. Um, I don't talk about pelvic biomechanics and anterior tilt and, you know, what one side's more tilted than the other. It's kind of like, all right, well, it hurts when you squat, you know, I'll get them on the table and I'll like, I'll find the things that are really, really lacking, like the low hanging fruit. And I'm like, I want to make these things better. And then we'll retest your squat and we'll see if it feels better. But there's no, beyond that, there's no explanation of, of biomechanics of even pain. I mean, cause you know, the whole thing with pain science was that the biomechanical language was deterministic and threatening, but I also don't think that people want to hear about their amygdala and their ion channels <laughs> being more sensitive. Cause I, like, to me, I'm like, I'd rather hear that my pelvis is forward than that I have a hyperactive amygdala. I'd be like, wait, like there's a the right, part of my right. brain that's like, you know, right. like, 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 like functioning out of control or like on overdrive. Like I'll take the, the tilted pelvis. Right. Or like, you know, I've got like, um, you know, immune system hypersensitivity and all these things. So right, right. I, th I think even that became deterministic and, you know, it, it, it came to the point where like, if you said anything that was related to neuroscience, you didn't get a pass because that was the cool thing and biomechanics was bad. But then we were taking it like really far with as a feel with like doing the nerve glides. And I'm kind of like, this to me is just as reductionist as the biomechanical stuff. Like we're going to try to like isolate this nerve track and turn our head this way and bend our wrist this way. It's like, just get someone to move in a non-threatening way. Like there's no evidence that doing this very, very like optimized specific nerve glide is like actually making somebody better. So I think, I think, the, the neuroscience stuff just became like biomechanics through a different lens, you know? Right. Um, but that's why, like, I don't, unless someone deliberately asks for it, I don't try to give explanations because I don't know. It's like, all we're doing is trial and error. It's like, let's just try stuff. And you're, you're here because you feel a certain way. And that's really all that matters. Um, Cause sometimes like I'll get people to feel better or, you know, not like, but or what we'll do will make them feel better. And they're like, but why, why, how did that work? Why did that, and it's I'm like, do you actually care? Like you feel better. I mean, right. I'm like, I can give you a BS explanation as to why I think that it worked, but like, would you rather I gave you a good explanation and you didn't feel better? Because some people would like rather have the explanation and not feel better. It's like, well, I don't know what, like what something clearly happened because you, you have more range of motion or you tested better. And the thing that hurt before you came in doesn't hurt. So let's just like call it a win. But it's that like semblance of control. Like I have to know why, but we don't. And I think the sooner people are okay with that, that's also part of like that process. I think of it's part of the therapeutic process, like being okay with that uncertainty versus like giving someone a, that false precision explanation. I think they, they want to know why, because they want their inherent, their internal model to have predictive power of like, if I felt like yes. this again, I'm, I'm able to do this thing, which operates according to this principle and not feel that way again. When to your right. point, it's like, every, you know, 
it's there's there's some proverb like uh no man walks in the same river twice have you heard that yeah yeah i know what you're talking like about for, yeah. for for like he is not the same man nor is it nor is it the yeah. same river or something like that so it's like yeah, things yeah. that could could have worked for you eight years ago like i had five years of my athletic career throughout college and grad school were just doing some like banded hip mobilization completely resolved my hip pain for like four hours enough that i can like train with with no issue whatsoever and i just like kept running that back until it didn't work and and, and now it almost makes me feel worse if I do that. But it's like, I, I wouldn't trade the four years of pain-free, you know, athletic competition I was able to enjoy because of that. Um, yeah, just acknowledging the inherent uncertainty of like, something could work for you now. And I still think that you're you're certainly right as a practitioner to attempt to learn from what's working with clients that you're treating. But I think if if you are that client, how much do you really want to know? That That's a great point though, because I think sometimes... Um, again, ego takes over as a clinician and certain clinicians, like they'll see it as a defeat. Like manual therapy is a big one. Like a lot of clinicians look at manual therapy as like, if you, if you like do manual therapy on someone, it's because your exercise failed and they look at that as a defeat. I kind of look at it. Like if I can, if someone comes in and I can like rub their back for like five minutes and their back feels better and I don't have to give them any exercise. That to me is a huge win because like, again, I don't want to make someone a busybody. Like, right. yeah, it's great self-efficacy, but like, if you could, cause this is not like, this is a, this, this really happens. Someone comes in, like something hurts. You, you like do some kind of manual therapy and whatever they can, came in for is completely resolved. I don't know how that worked, um, but it does sometimes. And if they can go back to doing what they're doing without having to do like a warm up or activation or adding a routine into their already busy lives and they don't have to come and see you again, is that manual therapy? I, I would actually, to me, it's more of a win. Like, now, now I'm not adding more time to your life. I'd actually rather all things being equal, just do like a manual technique on you and like, have you be on your way and never see you again. Yeah. Most of the time, that's not how it works out, but I'm not like averse to doing manual therapy, but some people would look at it like, Oh, I had to put my hands on them. Like, that's not good. It's, I mean, you can actually give people a ton of self efficacy with manual therapy. If you're doing it, here's the thing. If you're doing it every day and they keep coming back and not getting better, well, it didn't work. So yes, that's robbing them of self efficacy, but if you do it and they feel better and they can go back to living their life and they don't need to come back, like you've you've dramatically improved their self-efficacy because now they're not in pain anymore. So people can be very dogmatic and they care too much about like how they got somebody better. It's like if you're a purist and some of these acronyms that we talked about when we were you know recording, it's like, oh, like a banded hip mobilization. I would never do that, you know, but it's like right. if you do that and they feel better, like great, send them home. Yeah. Yeah. There's, yeah, exactly. Especially if that's something that they can actually replicate on their own, in which case, like you're not, you're not robbing them of self-efficacy at all. Yeah. Just like people get emotionally attached to exercises. Clinicians get emotionally attached to how they get someone better. And that's, that's very, very, it's very, very limiting. And I, like, I I was, I mean, I was way more dogmatic about certain stuff than I, than I am now. And and like, I always wanted to improve. Someone came in and it's like, they said, you know, my neck hurts. And I would do an assessment. And it's like, oh, well, you're, you know, like you're missing a bunch of big, big toe dorsiflexion. I like, I wanted to fix everything. Now right. I'm like, you're like, you're the customer. You came here because your neck hurts. Like, okay, if I can get your neck to feel better, I don't, I don't need to like, I, I, you know, improve your hips and your, your ankles and all these things. Like, you know, if it's, a, if it's an, an athlete and they have like, kind of like more, you know, ambitious goals, I might look at that if I think it's affecting something that matters, but like in a pure, like pure, like physical therapy setting, 
I'm here because my neck hurts. I just want my neck to feel better. And that's the only reason I'm here. Like, I'm not going to be like chasing their big toe dorsiflexion. I'm just going to try to get their neck to feel better. But right. earlier in my career, I was like, oh, like, well, you're like, you're, you're this pattern. Like I have to reverse it. And now I'm kind of like, unless I think that that that's meaningful for them and it's related to what it is they're actually there for, I don't touch it. Yeah. It's like people come to us really jacked up. And then there's this continuum of like really jacked up to biomechanically perfect and biomechanically perfect. As we talked about, like no one can really agree what that means, but it's also exactly. just an ideal. So all yeah. you need to do is get them from like really jacked up to only kind of jacked up. And they're going to yeah. think that you do good work and they're going to be able to do their stuff. And right. I think that's, you know, again, it's like with this persistent pain stuff, that's where I think the power is, is getting people to realize like they can still, they can still have a left hemi pelvis that's anteriorly oriented relative to the right one and function just fine. And maybe they have like a little bit of hip tightness, a little bit of back tightness, but they're still doing the thing. And that's completely okay. Not everything needs to be, I guess, infinite progression is the, the other thing that comes to mind. Like not everything needs to progress towards biomechanically perfect. Plenty of things are just simply good enough once you get a person there. Yeah, it would be interesting to do an experiment, like kind of like one of those, you know, you just got caught on camera where you could have like actors go into a physical therapy clinic that don't have any pain. And they could be like, yeah, you know, like my knee hurts, my hip hurts. And the physical therapist would do all those measurements and be like, oh, well, your knee hurts because of this and your back hurts because of that. And then at the end of it, it's like, well, actually, none of this hurts. So, right. you know, right. the, 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 the determinism of biomechanics, like it's perfectly explanatory when someone has pain. But then what about when they don't have pain? Then what? Because like, the, like this other person has the same exact presentation and doesn't hurt. So I'm not saying that it doesn't matter, but we have to be very, very careful with it because for every person that it matters for, for there's two people that it doesn't matter for. Or more. Or more, I, or more, or more. Yeah. Right. I think about that. So I've, I've met with at this point, like four hip surgeons in the Denver area. And the, the last one I met with, he walked in big presence, big personality. He's like, don't tell me what the other guys have said. Don't, don't even tell me which side it is. Like, I just want to, I'm going to look at the radiography. I'm going to look at the MRI. And he sits there like eight minutes and he's like, it's your right hip. And I'm like, no, nah, dude, it's my left. <laughs> You know, like it's to your point, it's like, and that's not to say that things he saw didn't matter or weren't there. It's just like, these are all just fairly narrow slices of the pie. Like they're just pieces of the picture. And at various points, it make it might make more sense to intervene surgically. And at others, it might make more sense to try to intervene in a non-surgical manner, at least until you can. Yeah. And that's why, I mean, like, I think assuming that it was financially feasible, like we should outside of like a very, very like acute and obvious trauma, we should always, you know, get a contralateral MRI, right? As like kind of a control. It's okay, you know, your 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 left hip hurts, get an MRI. Oh, you have a labral tear. Well, like, let's look at the right. Cause if the right is just as bad as left or worse, like maybe it's not the labral tear. But when we have that knowledge, like, okay, hip hurts, labral tear, it's that. Um, that's why like it always comes down to judgment with this stuff. Like we have to make sure that the the subjective and the objective stuff kind of marries and a lot of time it doesn't, but you know, with the technology that we have, it's very easy to, to just jump to a conclusion that it is something structural, especially when we don't have a contralateral image to compare to. Yeah. That, very well said. Well, I know Doug, I want to be respectful of your time, but is there anything that uh, remains top of mind, you know, based on anything that we chatted about over the past hour that you feel like we didn't touch on and that you would like, like to provide any additional context on? No, I mean, this is a great convo. I'd just say just, you know, like no one can tell you how to live your life. So you, you got to figure that out. And then, and then let the, the doctors and the clinicians 
adapt to you versus the other way around. They work for you. Very well said. Well, yeah. so aside from people knocking on your garage door in Connecticut, uh, how can people find out more about you, uh, what you and the guys do at Resilient? Where can we send them? Yeah, the best um, source of info for that, I'd say to go to the website, resilientperformance.com. And we have our Instagram. The handle for that is resilientppt for resilient performance physical therapy. And then the only social media that I'm active on individually is Twitter or X, as it's now called. So I'm, I'm green feet. So the color green, then feet PT on there. So any of those um, platforms, happy to engage with anybody. Very cool. And, and I should have said this at the at the start, but I um, I very nearly went to Columbia for physical therapy school. So we would have been, I think I would have been a year behind you, but I-, I you, you were 2015? I was 2015. Oh, cool. Okay. I like to imagine a completely alternate reality where I went to Columbia instead and I, I became one of the resilient boys. So, Well, that's, it's funny enough. That's actually like how, because Greg and Trevor were in the 2015 class. And I mean, real, very quickly, the genesis of resilient was I was in the Columbia Health Sciences Library. I saw somebody wearing a Mike Boyle strength and conditioning t-shirt turn out to be Trevor. And I'm, I'm kind of like, who are you? Like, why are you wearing a Mike Boyle strength and conditioning t-shirt? He's like, Oh, like I used to like intern at Mike Boyle's. And I'm like, Oh really? I'm like, are you in the PT program? He's like, yes, I'm in this class. I'm like, well, I'm in this. And that's, that's how it all started. And then he introduced me to Greg who, you know, was, uh, had been a strength coach for the Arizona diamondbacks prior to PT school. So we were kind of like the, the malcontents who, you know, we knew that we wanted to be PTs, but there was a lot more than what we we're getting in school. So we sort of gravitated to each other. And yeah, and that's uh, ended up here we are <laughs> in the business together. I, I found my own little troop of malcontents at uh, in, yeah. in Denver. What, one of the, I don't know if this, Pete Cicinelli, brother was Joe yeah. Cicinelli. Oh, that, okay. Yeah, I know Pete. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Pete's, Pete's a super good dude who, who had a successful career in baseball too. Yeah, I think he's doing his own thing now, but yeah, he was in baseball. So he was he was with the Braves for quite a while. But you, you gotta know. find those malcontents, you know? Yeah, yeah. We wanted to lift heavy stuff and like learn, you know, nitty-gritty biomechanics and not talk about pain neuroscience all that much. Right, right. Well, Doug, thank you again for taking the time to chat. Um, I think that's gonna be a really helpful talk with everybody. But yeah, hope to get you back on. Cool, man. Great talking. I'll talk to you soon. Sweet. Thank you. If you're enjoying what Michelle and I are putting together here, we'd appreciate it if you could leave a review on your pod player of choice. Reviews help us climb the rankings, which improves our ability to help more coaches and therapists continue to push our industry and knowledge base forward. The intro and outro music for More Train, Less Pain was produced by Jacob Azurdia. You can find out more about his music by visiting his Instagram page, J underscore Z-U-R-D-I-A. Thanks for listening.